We arrived and our school had a big Mao statue in front of it. We had no running water. We had hot showers in a different building every day except Thursday between the hours of five and six. And when we arrived, there was like Michael Jackson blasting all over the campus. And it was just this whole dichotomy of China, which continues to really define China today, I think. And as China is trying to move its massive economy to head towards carbon neutrality in 2060 and the transformation of significant industries, technology is going to be at the core of that. So they're going to need new ideas and they're going to need money. They've got plenty of money. The question is, where's the innovation going to come from? Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Deborah Lair. Deborah is the vice chairman and executive director of the Paulson Institute. She has served in the public, private, and not-for-profit sectors focused on China, the Middle East, and emerging markets. She has been one of my closest advisors dating back to when I was chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs, and she has helped me create and launch the U.S.-China Strategic Economic Dialogue when I was U.S. Treasury Secretary. She previously served as Deputy Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for China and as Director of Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. Deborah is also the founder and chairman of the Antiquities Coalition and founder of Baselina, a strategic consulting firm focused on China and the Middle East. Deborah, welcome to the podcast. I have the opportunity to get your advice and watch you in action on a daily basis. So I'm really looking forward to giving our listeners an opportunity to hear from you today. Let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Europe. Talk a bit about how your upbringing influenced you. Who were some of your early mentors and what did you learn from them? Hank, it's such an honor to be on your podcast. I'm really delighted. And it's true, I left the US when I was five and had the privilege of growing up in Germany, England, and France. My father was an Air Force pilot and my mother's English. And so whenever he had to go overseas, he was stationed in Thailand and Vietnam for a year, we would spend our time in England with her family. And so it was a varied upbringing. And really, as I think back on some of the influences, one was how to adapt into different cultures. But two, my dad really was one of those stereotypical Air Force pilots. He was bold and he was brash and he really enjoyed life and embracing new experiences. And I think he really encouraged me to think that way and to think, you know, in as these fighter pilots do basically that they thought they could do anything and they were invincible and not that I necessarily feel that way, but to be able to be bold in trying new things. Well, I tell you, that makes a big difference because inspiring people with a confidence that they can succeed, I think, makes a big difference in anyone's upbringing. Now, what drew you to China? What were some of your formative experiences working in and with that country? I'd like to say that I had some vision of China's direction, but the reality was I had started university in Paris 
and for family reasons ended up in San Antonio, Texas. And it was a really big culture shock. And I decided if I was going to experience this culture shock, I actually was gonna try and go someplace completely different. And I had a professor at the time who was Jewish. And when the Nazis came into Austria where he lived, his family actually went to Shanghai and he had loved his experience in China and had actually come to the United States getting a scholarship given by the US government. And I thought, well, China sounds like a really interesting place. I think I'll go do that. And this was in 1984. So I went and talked to my dad and said, I'm thinking I'm gonna go study in China. And he said, great, no problem. I'll call General Wang and set it up for you. I was thinking, you know, how does my dad know somebody in China? And he was head of logistics for some of the big fighter jets that the U.S. had at the time and worked with militaries all around the world. Well, it turned out, actually, he had been working with some generals in Taiwan. And I said, no, no, I'm not going there. I'm going to China. And he said, you're going to Red China at the time? And I was like, yes, that's where I'm going. And I did, and it was life-changing. We arrived and our school had a big Mao statue in front of it. We had no running water. We had hot showers in a different building every day except Thursday between the hours of five and six. And when we arrived, there was like Michael Jackson blasting all over the campus. And it was just this whole dichotomy of China, which continues to really define China today, I think. And so what appealed to you? You know, know, it's really interesting. I got a chance to really travel the country as part of this program. We were in a language program learning Chinese, and I learned enough where I could start to communicate. And I noticed it was very interesting. We had to be identified by a small pin that we had that said what was in our Danwei, basically our work unit, which was the school. And I started noticing if I went out and we had our bikes and we would ride everywhere and, you know, Tiananmen now, which is a mass of cars, in those days you'd see maybe two cars in Tiananmen Square, but thousands and thousands of bicycles. If I was wearing the Dunway, people would talk to me. If I wasn't wearing the pin, no one would speak to me. And it became really like a little interesting experiment. But once I was wearing it, people wanted to test out their English and had some fascinating conversations. And soon after I finished the program in China, I actually went back to Europe. I was in London at university there, and I went to the then Soviet Union with a group of students, and the two could not be more different. And it made me realize in many ways how more open China was actually than the then Soviet Union and the contrast. So I just had found that very interesting and felt that was something I wanted to pursue in my academic studies, which I did, and then continue on at work once I had a chance to work in the U.S. government. So now let's talk about the U.S. government and China policy. So you served in the government during a crucial moment in U.S. relations with China as the lead negotiator for China's accession to the World Trade Organization, known as the WTO. 20 years later, how do you assess the legacy of the economic engagement with China? But even before that, you were working on economic relations with China. So that must have piqued your interest in, did you study economics in college? I did, I was an economics major and an international relations major with a focus on Chinese studies. 
And so had started my career at the Commerce Department and had a chance to go, was recruited over to the National Security Council to be a director for Asian Affairs, just as we were starting to have a trade policy with China, which is why they were looking for someone with an economic background. And at the time we were negotiating what was the largest bilateral trade agreement that the U.S. had ever engaged in. And this was part of General Scowcroft and President Bush's strategy of rebuilding relations after 1989. And it was a very interesting time to be there. We were selling a force to Taiwan. We were trying to reestablish cabinet to cabinet level discussions with China. And the trade part became a real core function and part of the overall bilateral relationship. And the agreement was concluded actually on the day that President Bush was supposed to have his debate with President Clinton. And he talked about concluding this agreement that was good for America. And we saw in the sectors that we were negotiating, and it was very interesting at the time because most of the negotiations that we were having with the Chinese were not about the specific market openings. We were bringing economists over to explain to them why they needed to be doing basic things like having a published tariff rate so that tariffs were published on a consistent basis at every port. They shouldn't be negotiated. Why that brought greater consistency. And I would argue, looking back, that the biggest accomplishment of all of that very large trade agreement was a very simple provision. It was the first one which called for China having to publish all its trade laws. And at the time, they were considered, and this was, keep in mind, this was 1992-93, so it wasn't all that long ago. They didn't publish any of them, and they were confidential. And so American companies were expected to abide by them, but they could be arrested if they actually got a copy of them. And so the state council put out a one-line document that simply said, only trade laws and regulations that are published are enforceable. And it eliminated a whole layer of corruption within the system and brought greater transparency to it. And we saw the value of trying to bring China into rules-based structures. And negotiations have been going on in the late 1980s to bring China into the WTO, but they were based on political issues. And when I went over to USTR, it was under then President Clinton and the US Trade Representative was Mickey Cantor. They saw there was a value to really push for high level, very detailed agreement with China that would hold them to the confines of this new world trade organization that had just been launched. And there was great hope of what the value would be of that organization because for the first time it was an international trade organization that brought in its members to something that actually had teeth. So all the members agreed that if you were not abiding by the rules that had been negotiated, you actually could go under a judicial review and have penalties. And so we started the negotiations again with China for the WTO, and we actually did it in many ways on a bilateral basis, not through the multilateral process. We cut off big significant portions of the agreement that we thought were in the US interest. So services being one of them where we were most competitive, and we proceeded on a bilateral basis, intellectual property rights, services, tariffs, to try and reach some kind of agreement. And then we took it into the WTO to try and reach consensus. But looking back, I still believe in the value 
of bringing China and other countries into these types of rules-based organizations because where the commitments were clear, China abided by them. The challenge was our expectation was that the World Trade Organization would continue to grow to reflect what the modern trade world has done and it didn't. There was never another global round essentially after its creation. And for the last 20 years or so, we haven't had a bilateral agreement with China or even a multilateral agreement in any significant way with China until the phase one agreement with President Trump. And I think that has been one of the issues that has led us to have such a complicated trade relationship with China today. Well, I'm going to want to talk in a minute about the World Trade Organization, and which is in need of a major reboot. But looking back more generally at the legacy of U.S. economic relations with China, how do you assess that today? You know, has this been a positive thing in your judgment? Overall, I think that it's been a very positive thing for the U.S. that we have seen as China has continued to open and we pushed for them to open in sectors where it's competitive. We've seen significant increases in our exports that we have been the beneficiaries of cheap imports from China in our own economy. But that's not to say that there haven't been certain challenges and bad practices that needed to be addressed. Certainly intellectual property rights stands out as one of those. The issues around technology transfer and absolutely issues around cyber theft and other practices that are much harder to address, but much more important in today's trading world. And digital trade and e-commerce where China is now a powerhouse, FinTech, I could name a lot of them that are going, that are essentially unregulated. We are now not only facing competition with China bilaterally, but China is now exporting and we're starting to compete with China in markets that usually the United States dominated like the Middle East and Latin America. And these are going to be big policy challenges that the United States needs to address. So this now brings us to the WTO and it's clearly in need of a reboot. How can it be reformed and updated in a way that allows it to address some of the modern challenges posed by China And if the WTO isn't the right forum for addressing these challenges, what is? An excellent and and complicated question. One of the biggest challenges of the WTO is it's a consensus organization. And so every country has one vote. And when you're negotiating over such contentious political issues like agriculture that have such a political resonance in domestic politics, it's very hard to reach a global consensus. And to be effective, that needs to be reformed on particular issues because the only way that you're going to start to address the challenging issues where there are major differences of opinion is if you have maybe a majority rules versus a consensus rule. And that's one of the reasons that we haven't been able to have any global round be concluded since the creation of the WTO. So on these issues, on the technology issues in particular, it used to be the WTO handed the trade issues and entities like COCOM, which was a group of sort of allies that had come together to control the export of technologies going to, whether it was the then Soviet Union or to China and other countries of concern, would meet on a regular basis to determine what the consensus would be for the control of those kinds of technologies. 
and you could envision some kind of new COCOM-like entity to coordinate more sensitive technologies as the WTO really isn't the right place for doing that. And it's probably, it's not the right membership for doing that either. But the, in this modern world, we've really seen a, a, a very, it's very difficult to separate out sometimes the commercial technology and the sensitive technology. And you've talked a lot, Hank, about the need to be focused on how we at one level manage to control certain technologies that are essential for national security, while on the other hand, not hampering innovation and our ability to commercialize, particularly as China becomes the world's largest consumer market. And finding a way to do that multilaterally is a much better path than doing it unilaterally. Yeah, and Deborah, the challenges are huge because if we're just dealing with our allies, it'd still be difficult to come up with ways to upgrade and update the trade rules so that they apply to digital trade and technological advances and the way the world is changing. And, you know, it's, I think, very unrealistic to believe we're going to have any kind of global trade order or investment order that doesn't involve China when so much of the rest of the world is going to insist on having an economic relationship with China. And as you and I have talked about, even though our relationship, economic relationship with China is very complicated, it's one that it, it may not benefit us to the extent we think it should. I don't think it benefits us to the extent we think it should, but it benefits the United States. And, you know, and, and there's ways in which we can restructure it so it benefits us even more. So this is a hugely important area. If I could just add to that, Hank, too, I think that's one of the reasons important that we continue bilateral negotiations, because while it is important that we have a multilateral trade policy, which doesn't seem to be a priority at the moment, because we do need to be looking at other markets besides China, continuing to push on what's to the U.S. competitive advantage in a relationship with China is also important and very important to not only push for a full implementation of phase one, the trade agreement with China, but for a phase two agreement. And lastly, one of the areas that the WTO could be effective is potentially looking at what are some of the harmful benefits of trade and for those left behind and how you start to think creatively about those left behind and who are impacted by some of the, the natural changes and evolution in global trade and how we can creatively about those industries. For sure. And, and of course, let, let's talk about China and the rest of the world, because many in the U.S. are concerned not only by China's growing presence in international organizations, but its global ambitions more generally. You've done a lot of work in the Middle East an area where China has made major inroads over the past decades. Talk about how China is approaching this region and to what extent it should concern the U.S. You're absolutely right. China has looked to play to its strength economically, and also it's looked to diversify away from so much reliance on the U.S. As it's done that, it's looked to what other regions it can start to focus on. And what we've seen is a significant increase in the relationship between China and countries in the Middle East and North Africa. When it comes to technology, for example, the Chinese have 
started courting the Israelis. They see them as a potential source of technology cooperation. We've seen Vice President Wan Shishan, for example, visiting there, a number of other senior officials passing through Israel on their way. The Chinese have also looked at upgrading their relationship with the UAE and Egypt. They've increased it to what they call a strategic relationship and made them as hubs on China's Belt and Road. And as part of the Belt and Road, they've been investing significant amounts in infrastructure development. In the UAE, it takes the form actually of working on some energy issues. And while they talk about the first major green investment being in the UAE, it's actually in a coal-fired power plant in the UAE. Hardly green. Yeah, yeah hardly, hardly green. And in Egypt, they are helping the Sisi administration in building up some of its major new cities and a new administrative capital, somewhat similar to what China's done, not only through its financing, but also China State Construction is doing a lot of the work. And so it's mutually beneficial, so to speak. But also when it comes to technology, in many ways, Chinese technology is more appropriate for countries in the Middle East and Africa than necessarily US technology, which tends to be a little more sophisticated. And many of those markets now are reliant on Huawei and 4G for their telecom and are in active discussions to upgrade to 5G. The major artificial intelligence companies are all now in the Middle East offering facial recognition or bank cards. The major fintech companies are now in the Middle East. And it's rapidly becoming a competition between US and Chinese companies for Middle Eastern business. And as the Chinese ambassador once said at one of our events, as Chinese investment expands overseas, so will Chinese political interests. And so far, the Chinese haven't been a major player outside of Syria in the politics of the region. More and more, we're going to see that happening because it's going to be in their interest to have strong ties with those governments, as well as to ensure some kind of stability in their region. Yeah, it's not just Mideastern allies, but allies all around the world, which are a core strength of the United States of America and a big asset we have when it comes to competition with China. And here I'm talking about security competition, economic competition, competition in technology. And as we think about working with our allies, we need to be realistic. We need to recognize that there's no US ally I know that's looking to decouple from China economically. It's not in their interest to do so. But they also clearly want a major economic relationship with the United States. They're looking for us to lead. And so it's very important that we not cede the economic leadership to China globally. We need to be working to negotiate trade agreements with our allies in Asia, with our allies in Europe, with our allies around the world. And so this is very, very important. Now, you've done a lot of work, and we've worked together on the Paulson Institute and Green Finance. Tell our listeners what China is doing in this space and why it matters, and why it matters not only to the Chinese, but to the U.S. and the rest of the world. Well, Hank, I think you get a lot of credit because you were one of the initial innovators and thinkers around the importance of green finance and how you try and move it away from being a philanthropic effort into 
the mainstream of business. And over the last five years, we've really seen a significant difference. When China took on the G20 presidency, it was the first time that a green finance study group was created. At the time, it was chaired by the Chinese and the UK. And that really set the stage to get at least political will at the leadership level, at the head of state level, from the G20 to start to focus on green finance. And since that time, we've really seen a sea change. Now you hear multilateral institutions, you hear private equity companies, you hear investment banks dedicating significant amounts of money because they're starting to see climate as a business. Certainly with TPG as we've seen and launching a global climate fund, which could potentially be one of the largest in the world, it's because it's anticipating that now there's opportunity for investing and bringing about change through the private sector. At the same time, we've seen significant changes in policies at the government level. European Union is doing a lot, but with China, they've made this as sort of an all of government approach. The People's Bank of China, under the innovative leadership of Zhou Xiaochuan and their chief economist at the time, Ma Zhun, really had the foresight to look at how China could tap into creating a green bond market, which was necessary for some of their own development, creating private equity and the US-China Green Fund, which was supported by the Paulson Institute as one of our innovative ideas, has really helped not only in sourcing US technology in clean tech to deploy in China, but also helping drive some of the change in China around clean tech and clean solutions. And the development and launch of China's carbon exchange is really in a, in a field where there may be lots of big ideas, but few that come to fruition. It's really a big idea that can have a significant impact because it's going to bring, with its launch in June, 45% of China's carbon emissions under a trading scheme, but 14% of global emissions under a trading scheme, which is huge. And by the time they add their five or six top polluting industries to this carbon exchange, it could potentially bring 30 to 40% of global emissions under China's trading scheme. And China is actively seeking not only to manage this domestically, but to work with other countries along the Belt and Road to help them in setting up carbon exchanges and then allowing them to trade on the Beijing National Exchange. If they do that, we could see a significant amount of carbon being traded on Chinese terms with the Chinese setting the standards, China trying to set the price, China looking at the enforcement. It could be a complete transformation in how carbon is looked at, and as you have talked about, really turning carbon into a currency. Yeah. Carbon markets in China are a really big deal because we have no hope, no chance to meet the climate challenge unless China is able to curb its carbon emissions. And putting a price on carbon in China, I think, is going to be a key to doing that. And on top of that, the challenge is going to be particularly big in other developing nations who will naturally look to China as a model. 
And so the standards that China sets in its carbon markets will be important in many other markets around the world. That's big. Europe is a leader here. And they're clearly the leader in terms of setting standards for carbon offsets. And this will be the highest standard market initially. The U.S. is a laggard here. And as an American, this concerns me. And it concerns me for a number of reasons. That carbon offsets are going to be the currency that is used to finance the movement to uh, curb carbon emissions around the world. I refer to it as the carbon coin. And it's hard for the United States to set the standard here, the gold standard in terms of climate leadership, if we aren't a leader also when it comes to putting a price on carbon. But for now, we aren't. We are back in the game. President Biden is providing real leadership. But I think we're going to have to watch very carefully what happens in China as they set the standards here, because they can do it in a way which it not only helps them curb emissions, but gives them advantages and competitive advantages in terms of trade. And so, again, an area which is very important. That's right. And, you know, when it comes to climate as a business, which is really what we're starting to see, it's going to be interesting how it plays out between the EU, the US, and China, because a lot of the action is going to be in China because they can force or guide change from the top. And we've started to see it play out already when China's leapfrogging technology. So, for example, they can't compete in combustion cars, but they can definitely compete when it comes to new energy vehicles. We're seeing competition in lithium ion batteries, we're seeing competition in pricing of solar panels. And as China is trying to move its massive economy to head towards carbon neutrality in 2060 and the transformation of significant industries, technology is going to be at the core of that. So they're going to need new ideas and they're going to need money. They've got plenty of money. The question is, where's the innovation going to come from? And as they innovate, they're going to want to export that. And it's going to become a competition potentially between the US and the EU and China. And as you said, it's a double-edged sword there too, because in one, Bringing down prices, as we've seen with solar panels, has been good for renewable energy pricing and for adoption of the technology, but bad if you're in that field and there's dumping going on and you become, it's price competitive. Yeah, and I would argue, Deborah, we innovate like no other country in the world. And our innovation in clean energy is ahead of China. But the thing that the Chinese do is take that innovation and can move it out and commercialize it and scale quicker than anyone else. And of course, they've got it's such a large economy and there's such a big need there. The real danger is that they will take the innovations, they will apply it, and they will commercialize it, and they will set standards, and this will advantage them economically. But it will also advantage the whole world in terms of the progress they're going to make in climate. Absolutely. So now let's switch gears. In addition to your role at the Paulson Institute, you are the founder and chairman of the Antiquities Coalition. Tell our listeners about your work there. What problem are you trying to solve and how are you going about solving it? So the global trade in 
illicit or looted antiquities is one of the largest illegal trades in the world, but seldom talked about and often viewed as a crime without victims. So I started the Antiquities Coalition soon after the Egyptian revolution. It was inspired by the people of Cairo who came together to actually protect the Egyptian museum from looters. And we offered help because we were hearing at the time with the breakdown in civil society there that every major archeological site was facing mass looting. And at first, to be honest, the Egyptians were denying it, but we got satellite imagery that could show the progression of the looting from right before the revolution to the revolution in January to 2011 to three months afterwards. And I got invited by the Egyptian government to go present our findings because in the satellite imagery, you can actually identify looter pits. And some of the major sites, even not far from the pyramids, looked like Swiss cheese just from these looter pits, these holes that were being dug. And you can identify from the imagery also when they find a tomb because of the buildup of dirt that starts to form like a little donut around the edges because they're digging down trying to find treasure. We brought together a group of kind of ex-policy makers to come up with suggestions for the Egyptian government, went to Egypt, presented this, signed an agreement, and that was the beginning of the Antiquities Coalition. And now we work with governments around the world, including with our own government. Actually, the State Department has a division focused on cultural heritage, and they can negotiate cultural agreements with other countries. And so we helped Egypt do one with the United States. And what's important about these agreements is it shifts the burden of proof. So for example, there was a golden mummy that the Metropolitan Museum acquired about four years ago. And it turns out that it was looted right after the revolution. It had been discovered in Egypt, I believe in Saqqara. It was smuggled out of the country to France. It was restored there, paperwork was falsified and the Metropolitan Museum purchased it and it became famous because Kim Kardashian posed next to it, also dressed in gold for the Metropolitan Fashion Ball. Well, some investigators from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office went to take a look at it and noticed that the stamp on it, on the paperwork said a particular date and the Arab Republic of Egypt but it turned out that the Arab Republic didn't exist at the time of the date. And if somebody at the museum had just Googled it, they would have realized that the paper was falsified. So why these agreements are so important is because if Egypt didn't have an agreement with the State Department, it would have to show that that was looted, which in this case we did, or the Manhattan District Attorney's Office did. But otherwise, now with the agreement, the burden of proof is on the Met or the other importer or purchaser to show that it's not looted. So we've helped countries like Libya and Algeria and Morocco and many others now in negotiating these really important agreements that help set policy standards with these governments. And now we're working across Europe. But it's, it's shocking, even with China, there's an estimate that nine out of 10 tombs in China have actually been looted. It's a massive problem. Wow. And, you know, there's big money involved here. And so it's, uh, and it's like so many other issues that we're seeing, uh, you know, whether it's uh, ivory, which is being looted from Africa, or, you know, timber from rainforests and so on. 
the key to a lot of it is having international agreements, having certification. And I, I think what you've done here is you've taken your trade expertise and you, your interest in different cultures and have really brought it to bear in a very, very positive way. If I could add one thing also, why it's so important, in addition, obviously, for the inherent value of the cultural items, is the sale of these items are funding organized crime and terrorism. So it's not just yeah. a cultural issue. We've really focused on the foreign policy and national security aspects of it because, for example, ISIS, Daesh, was using the sale of antiquities to fund their terrorism. We've seen direct links between the sale of antiquities and terrorism in France and some of the bombings that have happened. And even on our own shores, you know, the United States is the largest art market in the world. The Russians were using the sale of art and antiquities as a way to money launder and get around sanctions. And we see it increasingly being used by organized crime across Europe, for example, for money laundering. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. The political will and the recognition is there. The G20 has actually this year under Italy's leadership just taken up culture as an issue and their focus is on stopping the illegal trade. So we've started to see real progress in the last 10 years if we've been working on it, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah. Complicated, but important issue. So Deborah, you do a lot of work with, with young people. What's your best advice to our young listeners who may be interested in a career in public policy or in green finance? What do you tell them? So one inspired by my father, I do encourage people to think big because you never know what might happen. But if you're thinking small, that's as far as you're going to get. But the second thing is I encourage young people to go into public service of some kind because it's really a great experience as a young person. You get tremendous responsibility. You learn how to work within large organizations, which is of tremendous value, even if you want to be an entrepreneur in your life, building and understanding how organizations work and being able to work an issue through them is really a lifelong skill. And being able to provide service back to communities, whether it's in the context of working for your central government or working in the Congress or even through the Peace Corps, those kinds of things are incredibly important. Boy, does that resonate with me, because what your dad was telling you is to think big, to define your job expansively. And as you know, that's my leadership principle number one, whether someone is just starting off in their career or much more advanced, what separates the good leaders from the mediocre ones is an ability to define their job expansively, to think outside of the box, to think big. Very true. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.